Good morning, church family. It's uh, good to be together again this morning as we come to worship the Lord together today. And a very special welcome to all of those who are joining us online as well this morning with our live stream. I trust that you will also just feel part of of the body in a small way, although it's much better to be here. So if I can encourage you at home, uh, if you are watching in, to try, if at all possible, to join us uh, when you can. But it's really good to see everyone back here this morning. Just a couple of announcements as we uh, go into this week. Uh, Firstly, a special congratulations go to Daniel and Brenda McCutcheon, who will be celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary this coming Saturday, the 8th of May. Uh, What a wonderful milestone for them, and we rejoice with them at at God's goodness and faithfulness to them in their marriage, and uh, would encourage you to just share with them in on that day, just give them a message or a phone call, uh, and acknowledge God's goodness to them on that special occasion. We are still in holiday mode this week, so we don't have Bible Land running in our second service, so we will have a children's talk for the, uh, those children who are with us in the second service. But if there are any kids here this morning, uh, particularly kind of grade five to, to eight age group, um, if you'd like a worksheet to help you follow the service, uh, the, the sermon, there is a worksheet at the back on the music stand, uh, and you can pick one of those up, and uh, it may just help you to follow along with the sermon a little bit later. Uh, Then just to let you know that this coming Saturday, uh, we are having a new members orientation class, and so this is really the last call. If anyone would still like to um, join us for the new members orientation class, that's this coming Saturday at 9 o'clock. There is a form at the info desk. Please just register your uh, interest to attend there uh, so that we can make sure we've got enough of the uh, documentation and the books that we hand out. Um, it's, there's no obligation, but if you'd like to find out more about membership here at Honey Ridge, what we believe, who we are, uh, what we stand for, um, that's a good opportunity to come and find out. And that's part of the process, if you would like to become a member, that you do attend uh, that class on Saturday. So please take, uh, make use of that opportunity. And then um, today we are wonderfully able to celebrate communion in person uh, a little bit later in the service, and uh, you would have received these little packs just to explain quickly how they work. Uh, There's a clear film on the top which you have to peel off to get to the wafer, uh, but don't get so excited that you peel the silver one off as well, because then you get straight to the cup. Um, So just go for the the clear one to start with, and then we'll, uh, second, uh, second time round, you take the next layer off to get to the cup. Uh, This is the best we can do at the moment with the COVID regulations, and so while we won't really be meeting around the Lord's table as we usually do, um, we're doing the best that we can, and we'll do that a little bit later. Just wonderful to be able to do it in person uh, and not uh, online as we've had to do it during lockdown. And then just lastly, to remind you that we are still not taking up offerings during this time. If you'd like to uh, give physically to the Lord's work in terms of um, cash, there is a box at the back. Um, just outside Kate's office, you can put your, your tithes and offerings in there. And then for those who are giving electronically, if I could just remind you again to please uh, check your reference, either for tithes uh, or for the care fund or for missions, just so that the funds that you do give to the Lord's work are allocated correctly for that purpose. And again, if I could just encourage you to please observe the social distancing and the masks throughout the service Uh, There will be tea and coffee after the service, and we encourage you to stay for a time of fellowship as well. Thank you. Thanks, Debbie. Good morning, church family. Uh, Our call to worship this morning is taken from the book of Psalms, reading from Psalm 86, 
verses 1 to 9. Listen, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Protect my life, for I am faithful. You are my God. Save your servant who trusts in you. Be gracious to me, Lord, for I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant's life, because I appeal to you, Lord. For you, Lord, are kind and ready to forgive, abounding in faithful love to all who call on you. Lord, hear my prayer. Listen to my cries for mercy. I call on you in the day of my distress, for you will answer me. Lord, there is no one like you among other gods, and there are no works like yours. All the nations you have made will come and bow down before you, Lord, and will honor your name. Let us commit our time together to the Lord. Lord, we thank you for the reading of your word. As the psalmist declares, you are sovereign and there is none like you, O Lord. You are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon your name. So as we come before your throne of grace this morning in worship, May we worship you in spirit and in truth, and may your name be glorified. Amen. Let us stand and worship together.
Take your seats. Our second scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Isaiah, a reading from Isaiah 53, verses 3 to 7. This is a familiar portion of scripture uh, that we often read, but it really speaks about the coming Messiah. It speaks about Jesus and his birth and Jesus growing up um, as a little child. But it also speaks about what Jesus would endure when he's crucified and when he dies for us on the cross. So I trust that we will meditate on these words as we will prepare in a few minutes uh, to, to come around the communion table. So let's read together. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from He was despised, and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sickness, and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. Let's stand and worship together. Love for me. 
wonderful, as I mentioned earlier, to be able to gather together today to celebrate the Lord's Supper uh, as Jesus intended or partially as He intended. That is, that when we gather together as His people, we are to remember His death until He comes. We're not able to be the whole body of Christ here at Honey Ridge, but uh, this is as close as we can get, and so it's good to be able to do this in person. And so as we just participate in, in this, this Lord's Supper this morning, um, I want to just reiterate that this part of the service is only for those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not for those who were perhaps just born into a Christian home or those who perhaps prayed a a prayer uh, in some Christian event. Um, But no, it's it's only for those who, as we will see a little bit later when we come to the parables this morning, uh, it's for those whose hearts have been cut to the core with godly sorrow over our sin Uh, who've repented of that sin and put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's no age limit to this, but uh, we would encourage parents, if you're not sure, if your children uh, have yet reached that point of true repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that perhaps you just caution them to wait. Um, But if they do know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, then this table is for all believers. And so it's for you to come today really confidently before God, knowing that your sins are forgiven because of what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. Paul explains, and we're going to look a little bit later at that sinful woman who wept over Jesus' feet and her tears wet his feet and he, she dried his feet with her hair and she poured perfume on his feet. Paul explains how that sinful woman of the street in our parable today became a Christian, how she was saved. And that really should be the same testimony that each of us have uh, who are here as believers today. And that is by looking to the completed work of Christ on the cross. And so Paul says in Romans 3.22, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption, through the salvation that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, in his divine patience in times past, he passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that God might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So all the saints of the old uh, looked forward to Christ's death on the cross. We look back to Christ's death on the cross, and there we see that God is both the just and holy God who punishes sin and the one who justifies us who put our faith in Christ. And so really the, the Lord's Supper accomplishes two things every time we celebrate it. For the believer, it is a fresh reminder of the great love of God to us in Christ. As Gary was reading Isaiah 53 earlier, it became clear there that it was God who did all these things. It was God who gave His Son up for our transgressions. It's the love of God to us in Christ. And so the cross preaches a message of accomplishment. Every time we come to the Lord's Supper, our hearts should be greatly encouraged to remember that Jesus has paid the debt in full. 
Our salvation is accomplished in the fullest sense of the word. Yes, we see it working itself out in our lives gradually, but uh, it is accomplished. It is complete. And so that is a great encouragement for us. And so we can then come to the table with, with thankful hearts uh, today, and we can eat and we can drink. And you might say, well, why do we eat and drink? And really, this was something tangible. It's really the only, this and baptism are the only two tangible things that, that Jesus gave us to show our participation in his work. And so as we eat the bread and we, we drink the cup, we identify with, by faith, all that Jesus' body and, and blood symbolizes. But this supper also preaches another message, and that's a message to those who are unbelievers. And it's a gospel message, and we're glad if there are unbelievers here today, if there are children here today who are not yet believers, we're glad that you're here because as we eat the bread and drink the cup, it's proclaiming a message to you as well, a message which is calling you to understand the relentless grace of God the Father in pursuing us into his kingdom. So much so that he even gave his own son to die in our place that we might believe. And so it should be a, a great appeal to you this morning to think how great is the love of God that he is pursuing you even now uh, to become one of his children. And so let the elements today preach to you. Let them preach to you afresh uh, particularly because we haven't been able to do this as often as we would have liked to during lockdown. Let it preach to you of the grace and the forgiveness and the love and the mercy, and we've been singing about the washing and the cleansing uh, of the blood of Christ, but let it also preach a message of justice and righteousness. God is a holy God. He cannot let our sins go unpunished. And there is a judgment that awaits those uh, who reject this perfect sacrifice, but there is a great appeal uh, for you today to come and become one of his children. Let's say grace for the bread, and then we will uh, eat together. Our gracious Lord God, we, we thank you again for this wonderful joy that we can have of just gathering together as your people to worship you as we've been doing, to uh, read the word, and, uh, and to focus our attention at this part of the service on particularly what you accomplished for us through sending your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your body as you took on humanity and you lived the perfect life that, that we could never live. And then you went and you died in the flesh, in your body. You died on the cross as you took our sins upon you. And so we want to thank you for the bread, this element that you gave to us. We have not come up with this on our own. You gave us this element of bread broken in front of your disciples to remind us that your body was broken for us. And so as we eat this bread today, we pray that we would eat it with tremendous thanksgiving as the body of Christ, again united in you, as each one of us here today eats a, a small piece of bread, together we form the body of Christ here at Honeyridge. And we thank you that you are our head uh, who died in order to purchase us. And so give us a, a, a sense of great understanding and thanksgiving this morning and gratitude as we eat, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that on the night the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And we, we don't have a loaf to break yet today, but we have, each have a little uh, element, so if you won't take your, your little wafer, uh, he gave it to them and said, This is my body, uh, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So let's eat and just meditate quietly on God's grace to us in the Lord Jesus Christ.
just continue in prayer. We thank you, Lord, too, for the cup, which represents the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we've just uh, listened to that tune being played, the words, we worship, we worship the Lamb who was slain. Lord, as we're going to come a little bit later to that parable of, of that sinful woman who came and worshipped at your feet, so we want to come and do that this morning, every one of us, to worship at your feet, where your justice and your grace meet at the cross, as we consider all that you accomplished for us. We thank you for your blood that was shed for us, for we know that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so as we drink this cup, uh, we, we symbolize by faith our participation in what your blood accomplished for us on the cross, which is that complete forgiveness, that complete cleansing, that complete washing uh, that only you could have purchased for us. And so we want to thank you today for this cup, which symbolizes your blood shed on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. In the same way, Jesus took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it. We haven't been able to do it as often as we like, um, but as often as we do it, we do it in remembrance of Christ. For as we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we proclaim, we preach the Lord's death to ourselves firstly and then to others until he comes. So let's drink the cup with thanksgiving. Church family, please join me as we pray together. Lord, we thank you that we can once again come before you and call upon your name. We come to you as a needy people, declaring our full dependence on you. And so we bring our prayer request before you, Lord, knowing that you answer according to your perfect plan and purpose. Thank you for your grace towards us in the midst of the pandemic. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to have your healing hand upon those who are unwell with the virus. Bring comfort to those who have lost loved ones and grant our leaders wisdom as they continue to implement measures to manage and contain the spread of the virus. We also think of other countries around the world that are currently struggling with the pandemic. We especially think of India and ask, Lord, that you will draw closer to them as a nation at this time. Grant their leaders wisdom to deal with the current surge in cases. 
And Lord, closer to home, the pandemic has had a far-reaching impact on a number of people in our church. We pray for those who have lost employment. Lord, please undertake and provide for every family that has been impacted. May they know your love and care in a special way during this difficult time. Lord, we ask that you will now have your hand on Pastor Clinton as he brings your word to us. Please guide him and direct him through the power of your Holy Spirit. Open up the eyes of our understanding and grant us listening hearts to receive your word. And may the preaching of your word, Lord, fall on good soil that will bear much fruit for the honor and glory of your precious name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us stand and worship uh, one more time before uh, Pastor Clinton shares God's word with us.
If I could ask you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7, Luke's Gospel chapter 7, as we come to our next parable today in God's Word, in the study, in the series on the parables of Jesus. We're going to read Luke chapter 7 from verse 36 to 50. It's a short parable, but it's set in a slightly longer context than some of the others, and so we're going to read that together this morning. Luke 7, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at a a table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner." And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them would love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace." What a wonderful portion of God's word, and Gary's prayed that the Lord would be pleased to bless it to us, that our hearts would be ready. I've mentioned before in this series that one of the challenges in working through the parables of Jesus is that we come to these well-known stories, and we may be tempted to think, well, I know this story. I've heard it so many times. I know what it has to say to me. And, and this might be the temptation today as we come to this very well-known story of the sinful woman uh, who washed the feet of Jesus with her tears and dried them with her hair. But in case you may feel this morning that there is not much that you can learn from such a familiar story, uh, I was amazed in my preparation that one of the commentators uh, expounded this passage under six main points with 21 subpoints. Uh, So we won't be doing that today, Uh, but I hope you realize that there is this incredible depth in God's Word for us to consider every time we open it up. And I trust that by God's Spirit today uh, that we will be given uh, hearts and minds to truly examine the Scriptures today and to be able to behold wonderful things in God's Word. 
We are busy in our series in the parables of Jesus, and the actual parable that we're looking at today is just two verses. It's a very short portion, verse 41 and 42. But the power and the impact of the parable comes to us through understanding its context. You see, we must remember that Jesus didn't just typically go and stand in public places in the synagogue or the, the streets, uh, the, the city squares, and preach in parables. No, most of the time we find that Jesus was simply doing life in the context of, of people, normal things going on around him, people asking him questions, interacting with people on a daily basis. And it was often in those situations in which Jesus found himself uh, that he told parables in order to bring across a very specific lesson in a very specific context. And this is especially important as we, we come to this parable today, the parable of the two debtors. And so we're going to spend a bit of time this morning uh, first understanding the context before looking at what Jesus wants us to, to learn from, from this uh, parable. And so to start off this morning, we find a, a strange situation in verse 36 to 38. Now, we need to try and force the familiarity of the story out of our minds this morning. Try and do that if you can. Allow yourselves to be confronted by what is certainly a strange situation before us in verse 36 to 38. Perhaps if there are any new Christians here this morning or those who are perhaps still searching to, to find answers from the Bible, perhaps this is a new story for you today. And if that's the case, then you actually have an advantage over those who have been in church for many years and heard this parable many times. Because we must not romanticize this story. And so I want us to, to try and go back 2,000 years in our thinking. Let's put ourselves into the, the cultural context of this uniquely strange situation. Now, we don't know for sure, but the, the situation was probably a typical Sabbath day. Uh, it was a Sabbath day meal. Uh, Jesus was in the habit of going to the synagogue on, on the Sabbath and to preach and teach from the Word of God. And we know as well that the Pharisees liked to invite important and, and prominent people into their homes for meals after the synagogue in order to feel important uh, themselves and, and also to be able to promote themselves among the, the religious and the elitist circles of the day. This really was social networking in its purest form, hobnobbing with the rich and the famous and the religiously influential. But what makes this situation already strange is that Jesus was not particularly liked by the Pharisees. On the contrary, we know that in Luke 5 and Luke 6 that the Pharisees already were accusing Jesus of blasphemy. They were looking for, for reasons to discredit him. They were not happy with his ministry. They were frustrated with his healings and miracles. And they were particularly bothered by the fact that Jesus appeared to be working on the Sabbath. So why then would Simon the Pharisee invite Jesus for lunch? And we, we aren't given the reason. We can only speculate. We know that the Pharisees and the scribes often tried to, to trick Jesus, to trap him with, with difficult questions. Maybe that was his motive. Let's, let me get him into my house, and then I can have an opportunity to fire off difficult questions to trap him. We know as well that there was a general intrigue with Jesus. Although they didn't like what they saw, they were trying to understand him. So perhaps Simon was, was genuinely interested in meeting Jesus. Or perhaps he had an ulterior motive. We, we don't know for sure. 
But it was a very strange situation for Jesus to be in, in the home of a Pharisee for a meal. Now, if that wasn't strange enough, what happened next is, uh, really tips the, the strangeness scale. While Jesus and the other guests were reclining at the table, they had low tables in those days, and they would kind of lie around the table for a meal. While they were reclining at the table, a woman of the city, a sinful woman, most likely a a prostitute or an openly immoral woman, she hears that Jesus is at Simon's house for a meal, and she arrives on the scene with this alabaster jar of expensive perfume. Now, Again, we need to understand that in those days, these kinds of high society uh, dinner parties thrown by the Pharisees and and other uh, elite, they were often done in open courtyards or in dining rooms that were open uh, for for passers-by to kind of look in uh, and see what was going on. It, It was how you got the attention that you were actually looking for by inviting these people into your home. And so it was fairly common practice to have people from the street either coming in to the courtyard or standing at the street and looking into the dining room, standing around the perimeter to watch the meal in progress. Now, we might think that's strange, but it's actually not so strange if we think of the popularity these days of what they call reality TV shows, which basically do the same thing. They, they give us the opportunity to enter into the, the inner circle of a bunch of strangers doing whatever they are doing, and like virtual stalkers, we get caught up in the social interaction between these various people on the show. Not much has changed in 2,000 years, has it? I guess another similarity um, to this could be in our day and age, it's like having all kinds of followers on your social media account so that you can publicize to a group of mostly strangers how wonderful your life appears to be. Well, that's the the cultural context into which we find this sinful woman coming off the street and having access to Jesus as he reclines at the table. But this woman came with a different agenda, different to all the others who might have been there to, to look in on this meal. She was not interested in seeing what was on the menu. She was not interested in in trying to pick up which designer brands the people were wearing, the clothes that they were wearing. She wasn't really even interested in the conversation. She heard that Jesus was there. And she came prepared with this bottle of expensive anointing oil or anointing perfume. The oil in those days was was scented, so it was an oil-based perfume, and she came to honor Jesus. But as she gets close to Jesus... It seems that she is overwhelmed with emotion. And she starts to weep, and as she weeps, her tears flow down onto Jesus' feet. And we know that Jesus had not been given the opportunity to wash his feet when he arrived at the house, and so they would have been all dusty from walking outside in the streets with open sandals. And so as the woman's tears drop onto the feet of Jesus, you can just imagine how her tears would have etched a, a path of clean skin from in the dust, and then the woman sees that, and then she responds by bending down and untying her long hair and wiping the feet of Jesus with her hair. What a strange situation. And then if that was not enough, she then starts to kiss the feet of Jesus. Now, let's not pretend that this is not weird. <laughs> Dusty, dirty, smelly feet. She kisses them. 
Not just once, but repeatedly. And then she cracks open this this vase of expensive anointing perfume and she pours it over the feet of Jesus and it fills the room with sweet-smelling perfume. What an incredibly strange situation. Jesus is the unlikely guest in the home of a Pharisee, only to be approached then by this immoral, sinful woman of the street who then weeps tears onto his dirty feet, wipes the mud off with her hair while constantly kissing the feet of Jesus and anointing them with fine perfume. I'm sure that every eye in the house was fixed on Jesus to see what he would do or say. But it's not Jesus who responds first in our narrative, it's Simon. And so in the second place, we see an ironic statement in verse 39. Take a look at verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, saw all that was going on, he said to himself, so this is going on in his head, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now, here we start to see something of the true heart of Simon the Pharisee. And that his invitation to Jesus was not a a genuine invitation of, of wanting a relationship with Jesus, but rather one of a skeptic. Simon was wanting to see if Jesus really was who he claimed to be. And we can see that he had already made up his mind that Jesus could not be a prophet. And so the Pharisee makes a very ironic statement. He says that if Jesus really was God, if he was a man of God, he would have known that this woman was an unclean sinner. And in the the Jewish religion of the day, her touching Jesus would make him unclean. And her gift of perfume, if it had been procured through her street activities of prostitution, that would have been an unclean offering. And so he concludes in his thinking that Jesus clearly cannot be a prophet. He cannot be a man of God because Jesus was ignorant of who this woman is. But here's the irony. It is exactly because Jesus is a prophet. It's exactly because Jesus is the Son of God in the flesh that he not only knew exactly who this woman was and why she was doing what she was doing, but Jesus also knew exactly what Simon was thinking. 1 Chronicles 28 verse 9 says, The Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. Isn't that scary? The Lord searches all hearts and he understands every plan that you make and are making right now, all the things you should be um, thinking about in the week ahead, the things that are going in your mind. Jesus knows every thought, every plan. He not only knew the heart of the woman, but he knew the thoughts of Simon. And so this brings us then to the place where Jesus responds by telling the parable. And it really is a very simple story in verse 40 to 43, the heart of it's in verse 40. 1 and 42, and Jesus said to, to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And again, looking for prominence, looking for this kind of interaction with Jesus, he said, say it, teacher. And Jesus says, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Look at Simon's answer. The one, I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. What a simple story. 
And yet with those few words, Jesus revealed the the spiritual reality, the hidden spiritual reality that was going on in that dining room. Why the woman was doing what she was doing and why Simon responded the way he did. Now even Simon, in his hardness, knew exactly what Jesus was saying. He understood who the characters were in the parable. But let's just make it clear. Firstly, Jesus is the money lender. He's the creditor. Secondly, Simon is the one who owed the small debt of 50 denarii. And the woman is the one who owed the large debt of 500 denarii. So let's just look briefly at three key lessons which Jesus taught through this parable. Firstly, we see that both people owed a significant debt in verse 41. How do we know that? Well, a denarii was equal to a day's wage. So the first debtor owed a significant debt of approximately two months' worth of salary. Think about that in your context today. Two months' worth of salary, that was the small debt. The other person owed 500 days' wages. That's equivalent to almost, with weekends and holidays, two years' salary. Jesus was making it clear to Simon that both he and this woman were debtors to God. Both owed God a debt, a great debt, albeit that from a human perspective, the woman was was more sinful. Nevertheless, both owed this immense debt towards God. And this speaks to us today, too, because Paul says to us in Romans that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Gary read for us Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us has turned to his own way. There is no one righteous, not even one. Every one of us is a sinner who stands under the condemnation of God's wrath as a result of our own sin. Scripture is clear. And although it may appear to us that some people like Simon are good, upright, religious people, and others like the woman are openly sinful and immoral, Jesus makes it clear that every person from the most openly sinful to the most religious are all alike under the condemnation of God. We, we all owe a debt, a great debt, to a holy and a righteous God because of our sin. But secondly, we see that both people, and this is very interesting, both people are unable to pay the debt. Don't get too caught up in the numbers and say, well, if I owed God two months' salary, I could pay it off in a couple months. wouldn't be that bad. It's not what we meant to see here. We meant to see here that both could not pay the debt. Look at verse 42. When they could not pay, period. That's the point of the story. No matter how righteous a person thinks they are, Jesus says that neither the person with a little debt or the person with a big debt was able to pay. Why not? Because we have nothing to pay with. That's why. You see, many people today think that every time I sin, my account goes negative with God. I become a debtor. But every time I do something good, well, then God will pass a credit to my account. And so as long as I kind of end up the end of my life with a zero balance or or hopefully with a, a slightly positive balance, then I'll be okay. I'll go to heaven. And... uh Roman Catholicism therefore introduced the system of purgatory for you. If you didn't quite make it to the end of your life with a positive balance, well, then you could go to this space of limbo for a while, and hopefully there'd be some extra people on earth that liked you enough to not only get a zero balance for themselves, but to earn a bit of credit for you. 
And then eventually you would be set free from purgatory to go to heaven. But this is a totally unbiblical way of thinking. You will not find anything in Scripture to support that you and I can pay off our debts to God. Instead, what you will see is that the whole Bible is an unfolding story to show us that salvation through our works is impossible. This is simply the approach of all the other religions of the world, which we've kind of imported into Christianity, tried to massage Christianity into something similar to the religions of the world. But it's false. It's false. The Bible makes it clear that God's standard for righteousness and acceptance before Him is absolute perfection. Perfection in thought, perfection in word, perfection in deed for all of your life. And so even if you should just commit one sin, you've totally blown it. It's game over. There is no way for you to get out of that debt to God. And if you still think there may be a way to get out of it, Paul confirms in in Romans 14.23 that whatever we do, which does not proceed from a heart of faith in God, no matter what it is, it's sin. So even when you do a good thing, if that good thing hasn't been done from a heart which trusts in God for your salvation, that good thing is worthless. It's sin. And then again, if you still think, well, maybe my very good deeds will be good enough, God reminds us in Isaiah 64 that even our most righteous deeds in his sight, those deeds done in our own strength, are like filthy rags that lie in the corner of a mechanic's workshop. So whether you think you're a fairly good person this morning or whether you realize that you are a terribly sinful person, the spiritual reality is true of both. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is justified through the law because as Paul says, it's only through the law that we become more and more and more conscious of our own sinfulness and our own indebtedness to God and our inability to ever pay him back. The reality is we have no hope of ever settling the debt that we have with God. So then thirdly, Jesus reveals a wonderful truth that both people are graciously forgiven. Verse 42. This is the essence of the gospel right here when both the small debtor and the large debtor realized that they could not pay. The master canceled both their debts. Gone. Cancelled, forgiven, off the table. Now let me ask you this. What role did the two debtors have in this cancellation? None. We see there their debts were cancelled through the sovereign grace of the creditor. It doesn't say that when the master realized that they could not pay, he threw them in prison until they could pay. He says when they could not pay, he forgave their debts. He forgave them both. He canceled their record. Now, you don't need a a university degree to figure out what Jesus was trying to convey next when he says to Simon, now, Simon, which of these two would love the master more? And Simon answers very reluctantly, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you've supposed rightly. You've judged rightly. So now it's time for us to then see how Jesus applied this parable specifically to Simon and the woman and then also to us. And so in the fourth place then this morning, 
we see a transformed sinner in verse 44 to 47. What we learn from this story is that a person who has not been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, as Simon was, will not be able to see the work of transforming grace in the heart of another. Simon had seen this woman come in. He knew who she was, but he had no clue who she had become. He knew who she was, but he did not know who she now is. And so he passed judgment on her. He passed judgment on Jesus for having had contact with her, not realizing that it was exactly because Jesus had had contact with this woman that she was no longer the person he thought she was. So Jesus reveals to Simon the the heart of this woman's actions. She was someone who had had a great debt forgiven and whose love for Jesus was from a heart overflowing with gratitude to God for her salvation. Verse 44 to 47, Jesus does something very striking. He speaks openly to Simon about the contrast between Simon's heart and this woman's heart. I love verse 44. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon. So he's looking at the woman, but he's talking to Simon. Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet. That was just common courtesy in those days. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, a a common sign of respect. If you were inviting a guest into your home, you'd greet them with a kiss. Simon didn't give Jesus a kiss on his face. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not... Anoint my head with oil, something Simon should have done if he knew who was in his presence. But she has anointed my feet with this sweet-smelling ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, Jesus is not undermining who this woman is and her background and her past, but her sins are forgiven. And I think the ESV here says, for she loved much. I think the better translation is thus, she loved much. Other translations bring that out. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Therefore, she loves much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And this is the heart of the parable here. The whole encounter with Simon and the woman. He or she who is forgiven much, loves much. But he or she who is forgiven little, loves little. Jesus, knowing Simon's judgment of this woman, shows Simon through her actions that she is actually the transformed sinner. Her sins are forgiven. And he who thought that he was righteous is actually the one whose actions now come under the judgment of God. The whole table turns in this moment. Just as Simon thought that he knew the woman and judged her, he also thought that he knew Jesus and he judged Jesus. But Jesus explains here it's really the woman who is the one who is saved. What she was and what she's now become and and what she now is in Christ, it's all Jesus that has brought this transforming work about in her life. Now, we aren't told when this woman came to salvation. Perhaps it was that very morning in the synagogue as Jesus had preached. We don't know. But what we do know from verse 34 is that Jesus was well known for being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus was often in the company of women just like this. 
So somewhere in the preceding days, this woman had had an encounter with Jesus Christ. She had met the friend of sinners. She had come to learn about the kingdom of God, and and access into the kingdom of God is only through the Messiah, the Son of God, and she had come to know this salvation through her encounter with Jesus. And this experience of her salvation, of knowing that her sins could be totally forgiven, and that this salvation is freely given to her, even the most despised of sinners, this caused her to become overcome, overwhelmed with gratitude to Jesus. So she makes it her mission to find Jesus and to come and fall at his feet in humility and worship and to pour out this costly bottle of perfume over his feet. What we see in this woman's actions are those of someone who has truly repented. Someone who is grieved to their core over their own sinfulness, overcome with great sorrow, not just for what they've done, but but cut to the heart over their spiritual state before God. The state of inadequacy, sinfulness, inability, realizing that the debt that they owed to God could never, ever be repaid. And so they cast themselves humbly at the feet of Jesus in worship and adoration for the free forgiveness which he gives. Simon, however, was a religious man. He was a respected man. Some would have even argued that he was a good man. But I want you to see that Simon was not a broken man. He had not come to see the true state of his heart before God. He had not yet come to realize that he was a debtor to God. On the contrary, most of the Pharisees thought that God owed them. And as such, He had no debt which needed to be repaid. And so Simon here is exposed as a self-righteous man, a self-sufficient man, a man who judged both the sinner in the midst and the Savior because in his own eyes he didn't see himself as a sinner and therefore he did not need a Savior. The world is full of Simons today. And sadly, many of them attend church on a Sunday. This parable ends with a shift in focus from Simon to the woman, from the sinner to the Savior. And so let's see in the final place an amazing Savior in verse 48 to 50. If there was any doubt still left in Simon's mind as to who Jesus was, Jesus now dispels all doubts as he speaks to the woman. Look at verse 48. Jesus turns to the woman and he says to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. See, Jesus not only knew the heart and the thoughts of Simon, but he knew the heart of this woman. He knew that her tears and her actions were coming from a heart which had been exposed to the glory and the holiness of God, a heart which had been struck with the reality of her own sin, a heart which desired to come to Jesus to have her guilt and her sin dealt with. This woman had a heart of true saving faith. Jesus says it, your faith has saved you. And her actions show that she was not trying to do anything here to deserve or achieve salvation, but simply to trust in Jesus, to worship Jesus for having found her Savior. Perhaps at this point, she did not yet fully understand um, how she had been saved, 
Yet she knew for certain that Jesus was the only way of salvation. He was the way to the Father. And so she comes in repentance and worship to sit at his feet. So Jesus turns to this woman. Again, let's not forget who she is, the sinful, immoral woman of the city. And he says to her, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. There are no greater words that could ever be spoken to any individual than those words. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The people around the table knew exactly what this meant. Only God can forgive sins. Only God can grant peace. Who is this man who forgives sins? Well, this man is our glorious Savior. He is Jesus. He's the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The one who came into this world for the express purpose of doing exactly what he did on that day. You can just imagine Jesus before the foundations of the earth. In heaven, as the Father and the Son and the Spirit were planning the, the unfolding plan of redemption, I can just imagine Jesus saying, I can't wait for that day when that woman will be granted salvation. And that is his attitude to every single believer who comes to faith in Christ, to every single person who trusts in him for salvation. What an incredible Savior we have. He comes to all of us this morning from the glories of heaven he comes into the mess and the distress of our lives. He graciously exposes our sins. Most of us spend a lot of time in our lives trying to hide our sins. God graciously exposes our sins. Whether we are a self-righteous Simon or whether we are a self-abasing prostitute, he exposes our sins before a holy God. He shows us that our debts, no matter how big or small they may be, can never, ever be repaid by ourselves can only ever be dealt with or canceled or forgiven through his death on the cross as we've just celebrated in the Lord's Supper. So that when we repent of our sins, when we turn to him in faith, we will find this eternal peace with God. So as I close this morning, where does this parable leave you this morning? Are you perhaps a self-righteous Simon this morning? You judge all the sinners around you as weak and unclean, and you judge, maybe not openly, but practically, you judge the Savior as unnecessary. Or are you like this woman today, a sinner saved by grace, being transformed by loving gratitude into a grateful servant worshiper of the Most High God? Once again, we see the parable of Jesus dividing us, dividing us all into one of two categories. So do you want to know which one you really are this morning? And this is not for me to judge you or for you to judge me or anyone else, but for each one of us to look into our own hearts and to look at our attitudes and actions. Do you want to know which one you are this morning? How much do you love Jesus? How many tears have you wept at his feet as you grieve over your sinfulness? How much love and appreciation have you given to Jesus through the sweet-smelling offering of your life as a living sacrifice to his service? 
He who has been forgiven much loves much. But he who thinks he has little to be forgiven loves little. So how much do you love Jesus this morning? Such a simple question. May God show us all afresh today the, the glory of this salvation, the wonder of God's love for us in saving sinners. And my prayer is that every one of us will leave here today with this peace of God, knowing that our sins are truly forgiven, ready then to offer all of our lives and all of our affection and all of our devotion and everything that God has given to us as the sweet-smelling perfume poured over the feet of Jesus as we offer our lives to him. Let's come to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Lord God, we again just want to marvel at the incredible truths found in this dining room of a Pharisee as you interacted with both Simon and this woman who we don't even know her name. And yet we know that her name has been written in the Lamb's book of life from all eternity past. Oh Lord God, what a gracious Savior we have. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you did not reject us. You did not even there reject Simon, but simply pointed him to the grace of the gospel found in you and you alone. And so for those here today, Lord, who think that they are too sinful, too broken, too far gone to repent, may they take great courage to come to you in faith, knowing that you will never turn away a sinner, that you came into this world for the express purpose of saving sinners. Lord, for those here today who may think that they are doing a pretty good job on their own, handling life, doing religiously pretty well, morally pretty well, don't really see much need for, for you as a savior. Yeah, I value you in terms of being part of a church and all that that offers, but do not see their desperate need for salvation. Won't you bring them to that same place today where they recognize their inability to ever pay you the debt that they owe you? Lord, we are all broken sinners in desperate need of your forgiveness. And we want to thank you for the cross. We want to thank you for your love. Help us to see it. Help us to repent and put our faith in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand and sing together as we bring our service to a close this morning.
taken from the book of Galatians, chapter 1, reading verses 3 to 5. It says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. 